as Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Moses, humble before God. But what had made Moses so humble? What had made Moses into that man that God could speak with face to face? What were the sovereign foundations underlying his life? Well, you should be familiar with what had happened in Moses' life. You know how he was born at a time when Hebrew boys were supposed to be destroyed. You know how he was placed in a basket. You know how God had made provision for him to be picked up by the princess. You know how God had even provided his own mother to nurse him. You know how he had been raised in Egypt. You, knew, you know what he had laying before him, what he had offered to him in the riches and the power and authority of Egypt. You know how in a moment of anger, he killed a man and murdered him and had to run for his life. And how he went out into the wilderness and how he found his wife Miriam and how they tended sheep. You know the whole story and how God met him there in a burning bush. You know what had happened with Moses. A sovereign foundation. It wasn't an accident. Moses was formed by God. Moses' beginnings were orchestrated by God so that God could use Moses for his intention. The Apostle Paul had sovereign foundations. What does it say in Acts 9? Now there was a certain disciple named, at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. So God gave Ananias a vision. God gave Saul a vision. Go, he's seen the vision. Get over there. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. All very familiar to us, but do you think God did not orchestrate Saul's life as much as he orchestrated Jacob's life, as much as he orchestrated Joseph's life, as much as Joseph was able to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so this was true of Saul also, then Paul. And Paul refers to himself as the, the chief of sinners, the foremost of all, the least of all saints, he calls himself. The past few weeks, I've had the privilege of teaching a class in heart religion at the pastor's college using J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. And if you haven't read it, I would say you should read it. Go buy it. I don't care if it costs $60. It's a book you should buy. Thankfully, you can get it for a lot less. You can get it online for free. Okay? But if you're going to have a canon of the pastor's library. We all would put up some books to be in that canon. This is one of the books I would put up about heart religion, holiness. You want to have this book. You want to read it every year or two just to put yourself back in front of a man who's teaching you about what it means to be sanctified and what it means to be 
a follower of Jesus Christ. And Ryle is an old dead guy, like we like to talk about. Interestingly enough, in the back of the book, guess what Ryle does? And in the middle of the book, he quotes old dead guys. Okay, so he's kindred spirit. Get this book, Themes on Sanctification. But Ryle says about Paul's preparation for ministry, he says, the plain truth is that St. Paul saw in his own heart of hearts far more defects and infirmities than he saw in anyone else. The eyes of his understanding were so fully opened by the Holy Spirit of God that he detected a hundred things wrong in himself which the dull eyes of other men never observed at all. Now let us clearly understand that humility like St. Paul's was not a, a peculiar characteristic of the great apostle of the Gentiles. On the contrary, it is one leading mark of all the most eminent saints of God in every age. The more real grace men have in their hearts, the deeper is their sense of sin. Superficial and shallow professors in the warmth of their first love may talk, if they will, of perfection. The great saints in every era of church history, from St. Paul downward to this day, have always been clothed in humility. Why? Because they have sovereign, sovereign foundations. They have a sense of the reality of what they've been saved from. They've been delivered from sin. And so we don't think of ourselves as adequate in ourselves or consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. If we would be preachers of the word, we must know not only the clay we were formed of, but also the hand that formed us. God put the squeeze on us, even at a time when we weren't conscious of it. He, he took us and he molded and crafted us, preparing us for a day, a day when we would serve him. Have you come to be thankful for the crushing pressure of your sovereign foundations? Have you come to thank God for them, for the years of slopping pigs and bondage in Egypt? That is an understanding of your pastoral call. That is an understanding of having this treasure in earthen vessels. That's an understanding of how we're able to do the work that we do faithfully. Because we just look at our past and we say, I got nothing. I got nothing. But you, you seem to have orchestrated something out of my nothing. And you seem to be able to use my nothing for something by adding yourself to it. And it's glorious. And it's a privilege. And it causes us to tremble when we think about it. We just don't know how to process it. Preach the word as a dying man to dying men. Going on in the text. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God.
How do we adulterate the word of God? How do we adulterate the word of God? Well, we adulterate it by feeding our ego, by preaching ourselves. We adulterate it by inserting ourselves in it. And when we insert ourselves in it, it becomes void. It's gone. It has no power. Uh, You think about men who work hard. I was last week with a man that's here this morning, Mike Bowles, a friend. I was was at the National Farm Machinery Show in Louisville, Kentucky. Were any of you, other of you there? So we're walking through these airplane hangars full of uh, metal, assembled metal, right? And as we're walking through, I see these people carrying wooden sticks. And the wooden sticks are just crude. And I'm thinking, you know, Mike was there. He bought a really nice cattle separating stick while he was there. And it was a nice color. Was it, was it yours white or was it red? Or, it was red. And so he had a nice stick, nicely, nicely manufactured. These sticks were crude, made of wood. And they had a hole drilled through the top. And they had a, uh, a piece of leather strap run through the hole and tied up. And then there were some beads hanging on the strap. And I noticed them and I thought... Okay, some craft uh, ladies making some money here, or something's happening. But then something in the back of my head was like, okay, there's something just different about that. That stick I keep seeing walking by me. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people walking through these airplane hangar-sized buildings after airplane hangar-sized buildings of farm equipment. All these sticks. And so I realize, okay, I know something about that. I know something about the color on those beads. And I started to realize that it wasn't just that someone thought that farmers like bright colors, and so they put bright colors on the beads. You know, you never see tractors of aquamarine or salmon. They're always green and blue and red, right? So I started thinking, okay, I know the significance. This is that whole wordless Bible thing. You guys know the word, wordless Bible, the color, color wheel thing, right? If you don't, you've never been Baptist. <laughs> so I started looking for the booth from where the sticks originated, and about four hours in, we came into uh, one of the you know, shuttle hangar-sized buildings and And over to one side, in the middle of a side of the building, I saw a container full of sticks. And there were men standing with groups of two and three people with a stick in their hands, and they were clicking through those little beads, talking to those people. And I looked up and I saw that they were from an organization called uh, the uh, National Christian Farmers Association or something like that. Christian Farmers International, I forget. Yeah, and so they're, they're just standing there and they're working, they're clicking through. Okay? And so here they are preaching from the wordless Bible. They're not covenant grads. They're not RTS grads. They're not REPC grads. They're not Clear Note Pastors College grads. They're not Greyfriars grads. What are they? Well, they can't be reformed because I know what you're saying. You're saying, Max, there aren't enough colors on the color wheel for the number of beads reform guys would have to have to approve of. Right? It would look like a rainbow rosary. Which, as I think about it, 
the rosary is the Roman Catholic color wordless Bible thing. Just has one color and they keep clicking the same thing over and over again. Work, 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 work. That's all it is. Work, 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 work. I got to repeat this, I got to repeat this, I got to repeat this. I got to say this this many times and say it this many times. They're in such bondage. But this summer, Stephen, the Monroe County Fair, I on a thousand walking sticks and I want all the pastor's college guys there in shifts going through the wordless Bible. Don't you think we should? Yeah. Middle-aged farmers standing there with their sleeves rolled up like farmers have, doing work like farmers do. What would make a grown man so self-forgetful that he would stand and be observed by thousands of his peers as he tried to teach them eternal truths at a tractor show using colorful beads? You cannot feed your ego and be self-forgetful at the same time. To preach Christ Jesus as Lord without adulterating the word of God, you have to be all in. You're in it. All you got. You're ready to go to the tractor show. A man stopped by my house a couple of weeks ago and introduced himself as a neighbor from about a mile distant. He and his wife had admired our house and he wanted to stop and talk to me about it and ask me who built it and if he could see the plans. I invited him in. I, we sat down. We talked for about an hour. And I told him that I was a pastor from this church. As he was standing up to leave, he said, well, what kind of church is it? Well, here I knew I was at the, the Kairos. Is that how you say it? How did you say it? Different word. I confuse all the Greek words I know. I knew I was standing at the Kairos with this man. It was the supreme moment in the conversation. How many ways could I serve myself at that moment? How could I have been crafty? How could I have been tricky? How could I have protected my pride and not have told him of our, he and my, mutual sin problem? So many ways. And do you think I was thinking of them? Oh, yes. I was thinking of them. I didn't want to have to say what I knew would be the statement that would make me all in as a Christian, as an evangelist. I went ahead and told him that he and I were wicked, like the local sodomites. Now, I didn't say it just that way. But I did reference the sodomites in an appropriate way. And I did make the line, draw the line between he and I and their sin. And I told him that our church was committed to addressing sin with God's remedy. And all I can say is that our relationship, our relationship either began or it ended right there. And that's the reality when we do the work we're supposed to do. When we preach the word. Because when we have those conversations, there's two responses. Our relationship to people and our work with them either begins or it ends. And I'm not sure yet what it was with him. But we do it. We adulterate the word of God. We preach ourselves. 
we preach ourselves, you know, uh, Craig French, who posted on the blog, where's David? Craig posted that, that uh, little video about the guys on the blog, and the thing I noticed about them was funny. I listened to it. The thing I noticed about them was that they were sitting at a table with water bottles. It was very, very, like we would do all of our videos, right? But their sleeves were both rolled up, like farmers, like they were involved in some heavy work. And I thought, that's just poser. It was just poser. Because they weren't doing heavy work. And that is us preaching ourselves. That is us inserting ourselves. That is us stroking our egos with our hair, with our glasses, with our clothes, with our special diets, our vocabularies, our cars, our coffee houses, our reasonable approaches, our slick, accessible YouTube interviews, our distancing ourselves from men with bead-adorned walking sticks. Anything we can do. Get as far away from that as I can. And that was the disciples. And that was Jesus. Unlearned men who believed and had been changed, transformed. But when we preach Christ, friendships either begin or they end. The foolishness of the message preached is used by God to save those who believe. When we preach Christ, we are faithful. And third point I want us to look at from the text. Now I've lost it. Excuse me a second. Verse 7, for we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Think of the implications of you being an earthen vessel. Think about fatigue. A long week. A long week. A long week. We have those. And then we're, we're at Friday night. And Friday night, that week, you had a plan for. And the plan was that you would have a little time and relax, right? And you would kind of take a breath. And you're tired. And maybe you and your wife would have a special evening, right? So you get home. It's been a long week. You're tired. In fact, the day turns out to be much longer than you thought. And when you get home... The others have had to eat, and dinner is cold. And so you eat your dinner. And then you calibrate with your wife. You know calibrating? It's the, it's the first 45 minutes that you have in the car on your way to vacation anywhere. Right? So you spend some time calibrating. And finally, you sit down with your Diet Coke and your bowl of popcorn. And you're thinking, you're in your your at-home clothes. You know what I'm saying? The at-home clothes. And you're comfortable in your chair. And the phone rings. Can you come to the hospital right now? Fatigue. Tired. It's a reality. 
After, uh, after a particularly long counseling session recently, a dentist who is an elder at our church was talking to me on the phone. And he had done some significant work in the counseling. After, after it was over, he called me the next day. He said, you know, he's at work. He's pulling teeth. He said, you know, dentistry is easy after things like that. Pulling teeth. Chopping wood. Shoveling horse stalls. Compared to the labor of the care of souls. We all look forward to chopping wood. We look forward to just standing out there and sweating and chopping and, yeah, breathing, huffing, puffing. Think about Paul, house to house, day and night with tears. When you cry in pleading with the souls that are in your care, if you're crying and pleading with them, what happens when it's all done? You go home on your way home. You have a splitting headache. You've given something out of you in those situations. Earthen vessels. We have sickness. David uh, Wegener, a missionary that our church supports in Zambia, sent us an email talking about John Calvin and his sickness that he, that he dealt with. And he said that Calvin had kidney stones, and they were horrible. And Calvin talks about passing one the size of a filbert. Okay? And getting on a horse just to try to ride and jostle the stupid thing loose. And he had gout so bad that sometimes he would have to be carried to the pulpit in a litter. Because he couldn't walk. And he had other things I don't even like to think about. David had to include him in the email. Thank you, David. But we deal with sickness and difficulty. And we turn as yellow as with jaundice. And we carry that difficulty in the work that we do. And God uses earthen vessels. We have limited intellect. We don't know all the things we should know. We haven't read all the people that we should read. And we've forgotten most of the things we've read. And when people come into our library, into our office, and they see our library books, and they say, have you read all those? You know the answer, right? Some of them twice. <laughs> we have the litany of past failures behind us, years of double-mindedness, missed opportunities, feeding swine, ungodly decisions. What about that planted church that failed? What about the children God has given you that have grown up and perfectly exposed your sins in their sins? If it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. And I'll tell you, it's a kindness from God when it does. We have financial needs. Well, wait, Dave Ramsey has freed us all from our debt, right? No, no. What we think is, if I say what they need to hear, they'll leave the church for sure. And I know they're tithing. That's what we think. We have our general feelings of complete inadequacy. What do you think about when you prepare to preach? 
here when we're about to preach. It's at the time we sing the doxology, and after the doxology we have the pastoral prayer, and the preaching pastor of that morning comes to do the pastoral prayer. And I come down and sit in the front row during the singing of the doxology to prepare to do the pastoral prayer. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, how can I preach? What can I say? God, help me, help me, help me. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of the prophet. I'm a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. And that's what's in our mind as we prepare to stand up and preach. Oh, God, help me. We lack courage, as Stephen talked about earlier. We have envy of other men's gifting. We have sorrow over our sins. Even when we have a triumph, and allow me to use that word when when we're preaching. You know, sometimes when you preach, you know that the Holy Spirit comes and uses you, and rivers of living water flow out of you. They are truly God's rivers of living water. And you know that something happened when you preached that you could in no way explain it yourself. And you're just thankful that the prayer you prayed before the doxology, God heard, and he used you. And so you walk over after the sermon, and people are greeting you at the door, and you're, you're seeing them, and they're thanking you for the sermon. And no sooner are you done with the greeting of the people at the door than the demons start to speak in your heart. Zeus! Hermes! You know what I'm referring to, right? And you, you have to tear your shirt. But the voices are inside of you. And then you think to yourself, God, how can you have me? How can you possibly have me? And sometimes you say that in moments to your wife. How does God have me? Because she knows you better than anybody. Earthen vessels. Earthen vessels. And if it isn't bad enough that you feel all these weaknesses personally, a good deal of the time, there are some helpful others looking at you and eagerly saying, he is quite sinful and inadequate. God's ways are not our ways, and his dispensations are always right. He's chosen his church to be led by men with feet of clay, bags of dust. I went into a barn in Toledo, Ohio some years ago, and I mean, it's just a nondescript kind of barn. I, I can't hardly remember it, so I can't describe it to you. There, it's not a script. I went into that barn, and there in the middle of the floor in the barn, I think it was on a dirt floor, is a mint condition, stainless steel DeLorean. <laughs> covered in dust. And I'm just standing in the barn, I'm looking at this thing. And I'm thinking, there's a DeLorean. 
We don't think about the barn. We don't think about the dust. God has placed a treasure in earthen vessels covered with dust. And there we are, man. Weak, infirm, fallible, sick. And God comes, brings out of us rivers of living water. Rivers. I don't want to go into the... Uh, I was going to make some observations by Ryle about things that you would already see, scriptural basis for our, our authority. I will, I will say that it is truly a provision of God. It is God's orchestration that he uses men in this way. And I do want to read, since I have to, from John Calvin. I do want to read something <laughs> from John Calvin about it. But before I read it, I want to say, well, no, I'm going to read it first, then I'll say it. But as anciently he, that is God, did not confine himself to the law merely, but added priests as interpreters, from whose lips the people might inquire after his true meaning. So in the present day he would not only have us to be attentive to reading, but as appointed masters to give us their assistance. In this there is a twofold advantage, for on the one hand he by an admirable test proves our obedience when we listen to his ministers, just as we would to himself. While, on the other hand, he consults our weakness in being pleased to address us after the manner of men by means of interpreters, that he may thus allure us to himself instead of driving us away by his thunder. How well this familiar mode of teaching is suited to us all, the godly are aware, from the dread with which the divine majesty justly inspires them. Put a pin there and listen on. Those who think that the authority of the doctrine is impaired by the insignificance of the men who are called to teach betray their ingratitude. For among the many noble endowments with which God has adorned the human race, one of the most remarkable is that he deigns to consecrate the mouths and tongues of men to his service, making his own voice to be heard in them. Wherefore, let us not on our part decline obediently to embrace the doctrine of salvation delivered by his command and mouth, because although the power of God is not confined to external means, he has, however, confined us to his ordinary method of teaching, which method, when fanatics refuse to observe, they entangle themselves in many fatal snares, pride or fastidiousness, or emulation, induces many to persuade themselves that they can profit sufficiently by reading and meditating in private, and thus to despise public meetings and deem preaching superfluous. But since as much as in them lies they lose or burst the sacred bond of unity, none of them escapes the just punishment of this impious divorce, but become fascinated with pestiferous errors and the foulest delusions." 
Wherefore, in order that the pure simplicity of the faith may flourish among us, let us not decline to use this exercise of piety, which God, by his institution of it, has shown to be necessary, and which he so highly recommends. None, even amongst the most petulant of men, would venture to say that we are to shut our ears against God, but in all ages prophets and pious teachers have had a difficult contest to maintain with the ungodly whose perverseness cannot submit to the yoke of being taught by the lips and ministry of men. This is just the same as if they were to destroy the impress of God as exhibited to us in doctrine. People don't want to receive from us. Now, go back to the point where he talks about choosing men instead of driving us away by his thunder and how well this familiar mode of teaching is suited to us all suited to us all the godly are aware from the dread with which the divine majesty justly inspires them let me tell you our problem today is that people don't appreciate preaching do you know why they don't appreciate preaching because they have no fear of god You know why they have no fear of God? Because we haven't been preaching. And so they don't know the God that the Israelites knew when they went to the mountain. That the Israelites were so afraid, they said, No, no, Moses, you go talk to him. We'll just hear from you what he has to say. But we have come to a greater mountain than that. And there's something much more for the people we preach to to fear than just what the Israelites feared at the mountain, Sinai. We don't fear God. We've made God low. We don't see the kindness in his condescension in not using angels. We don't fear angels. We have no concept of fearing angels, let alone fearing God. Every place in the scripture where an angel came and met with people, what happens? Ah! They're terrified. And that's just an angel. We need to introduce the souls in our charge to God, to his holiness, to his character, to his judgment, to his justice, to their sin, to their separation, to their just condemnation, to Jesus, the Savior, who is their only hope. One more thing that Ryle says, he says, once more I say, pray for us, that is, pray for us preachers. Who is sufficient for the things that we have charge of? He says, remember the old saying of the fathers, quote, there is none more spiritual, there is, there, excuse me, there, remember the old saying of the fathers, none are in more spiritual danger than ministers. Why? Why are none in more spiritual danger than ministers? Is it because we might say the wrong thing? 
yes. But I think that's where we all trip up as, as reformed people. I always think about reformed people that we're like men on a firing squad. But we never get all the way through the three points of the actual execution of anything. Okay, so we're all ready, aim, now ready, aim. Are you sure you're ready, men? Now take aim. And it's not our tendency to make mistakes except the really big one. We're so afraid of the master that we bury it in the ground with preparation. And God says, let fly, fire, preach. You know, you have to have the mentality like you're holding the machine gun. Fire. Aim. <laughs> Fire. Aim. I'm serious. Man, we hold a message. We have a message. And the world is dying. The soul or, souls around us are dying. Pull the trigger. Be faithful. We will be judged by our teaching and our lack of it. Lastly, We are afflicted, verse 7, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. John Gill, the Baptist pastor, prior to in the same church, I think, as Charles Spurgeon, but I don't think it was called Metropolitan Tabernacle at the time. Probably some of you know better than I do. Reformed Baptist in in. Talking about this verse, he says, in, in, about death working in us, he says, This is the conclusion of the foregoing account, or the inference deduced from it. Either the death or dying of Christ, that is, the sufferings of his body, the church, for his sake, is wrought in us, fulfilled and perfected in us, or a corporal death has seized upon us, the seeds of death are in us. Our flesh, our bodies are mortal, dying off apace. Death has already attacked us, is working on our constitutions gradually and unpinning our tabernacles, which in a short time will be wholly took down and laid in the dust. Ryle says, um, a few more weddings, a few more funerals, a few more sermons, a few more Lord's Days, and it's done. It's like he's numbered his days with his work, okay? 
He's numbered his days with his faithfulness. But Gill says, some understand these words as spoken ironically. But the apostle seems not to be seeking in such a strain, but in the most serious manner, and about things solemn and awful. And his meaning is, ours is the sorrow, the trouble, the affliction, and death itself. Yours is the gain, the joy, the pleasure in life. What we get by preaching the gospel are reproach, persecution, and death. But this gospel we preach at such expense is the savor of life unto life to you and is the means of maintaining spiritual life in your souls and of nourishing you up into eternal life and which is no small encouragement to us to go on in our work with boldness, cheerfulness. Or these words regard the different state and condition of the apostle and other ministers and of the Corinthians. The one were in adversity and the other in prosperity. Okay, so here we are, death working in us. Death working in us. So that life can work in the people that, we've given, that we're given care of. Death working in us. Are you ready for stripes and deprivations? Are you ready for fatigue like you've never known it? Are you ready to spend your entire life unsung, anonymous, unrecognized, unacknowledged, and nameless? Are you ready for infamy and dishonor? For some of us, these are worse than stripes and deprivations. Are you prepared for death to work in you so that life can work in the flock of God? What reward is there, men? What reward is there? Well, certainly, Luke 17.10, we are unworthy slaves, and we've only done what we ought to have done. That's absolutely true. But do you see the glorious privilege of what we have? If I offered you a, a mint-conditioned DeLorean to keep in your barn, you'd probably all say, Sure. But it's nothing. It's zero. We, f we start at the very foundation, at the very call, when God says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. If you have the call of God on your life to preach the word, you are a chosen instrument of God to bear his name before the Gentiles. And who knows, maybe kings. And who knows, maybe Israelites. You have the message of Jesus Christ as Lord. You have the message of God speaking light into black hearts using your tongue. A treasure covered in dust. Lost souls seeking the face of Christ with much more at stake than the, the snake-bit Israelites had when they were looking to see where that bronze serpent was. Everybody around you who is not in Jesus Christ is snake-bit. You realize. And you are holding up Christ. 
you are displaying him. You are an earthen vessel declaring him to those people who are dying in their sin. And this is a a privilege. What a wonderful privilege. That's something worth dying for. That's something worth suffering for. Finally, something worth it. Jesus Christ, who has died to save sinners. A treasure in earthen vessels. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you today that you're kind to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have condescended to use pastors and preachers. We thank you, Lord, that you have sovereignly orchestrated for many of us to carry in the earthen vessel of our bodies the message, the glorious treasure of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you will cause us to declare him without ego, without adulterating, to declare Jesus Christ, to see souls reconciled to you through your Son who has loved us. Father, we thank you. And we pray that you will make us to be your vessels. Use us up, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.